If you would like to have a better understanding of authenticity, this fireside chat with Maddox is for you. My guests, Ed Salamanca, Randy Woodring, and Britt East, and I take a deep dive into what it means to be an authentic gay man. We each delve into questions such as, in the past, what has stood in your way of being authentic? What does not being authentic cost you? How do you know when you're actually authentic? What do you gain by showing up authentically? The conversation was deep, very connected, playful at times, and chock full of golden nuggets of wisdom. Hello and welcome to the Fireside Chat with Maddox. Tonight our topic is, what does it mean to be an authentic gay man? My guests are Ed Salamanca, who's in the financial world and a close friend of mine. Randy Woodring, who is in the therapeutic uh, psychotherapy therapeutic world, also a friend of mine, and Britt East, who is uh, author of um, a, a book called The Gay Man's Guide to Life. Did I say it right? You sure did. Awesome. Awesome. And also a friend of mine, but a newer friend than the other two gentlemen. So I want to start off with just telling, a, sharing a little bit about what's come to me recently about this whole authentic thing. And what I've come to realize is that we come into the world as babies. We pop out of mom's womb fully authentic, fully in touch with our feelings and our emotions, fully expressive. And then as we grow, we start to get messages from the world around us, from our environment that tell us so much of who we are authentically is not okay. And there's this point where uh, one, of, one of my podcasters that I follow, Justin Baldoni, calls it soul murder, where we actually separate ourselves from our authentic self. And then we spend a good portion of our life, if we ever find ourselves again, we spend a good portion of our lives seeking. We're all seekers, and it looks like the perfect job and, and the perfect relationship or the perfect title or, or the big bankroll, or um, it can look a lot of different ways. And that's never really what we're seeking. I've come to realize that what we're seeking is that part of ourselves that we lost track of as children when society gave us all those messages. What we're really seeking is reconnecting with our most authentic self. And when we are trying to satiate that seeking aspect with things like houses and cars and wardrobes and jobs and relationships, it's kind of like um, it's kind of like a July 4th sparkler. It doesn't last very long. It fizzles out pretty quick. And then we're still seeking. So with that, I'm just going to throw the question back out on the table. What does it mean to be an authentic gay man? And who wants to speak first? Well, I feel so attacked right now. I mean, you summed up the gay community so perfectly. I love it. I and mean, that was really beautifully put. You really, I think you really nailed us as a community. And 
Um, I, I, I suspect every one of us has gone through some version of the journey that you just laid out for us. I, I know I sure have. And like you said so eloquently, I think much of my adult life has been devoted to excavating those corners of my heart, um, removing all of the cultural conditioning and the family programming and all of that stuff, clearing it out so I could feel more fully expressed, take up more space in the world and be more of myself. Thank you. I, I guess I should have asked you, did you guys resonate with the whole concept of soul murder? It's new to me. It's a new concept to me. Um, but I, I hear where you're coming from. What, what came up for me, y'all, was um, not too far in the past, I was on a beach being able to watch children play. And I, I saw that, just that innocent and that authentic joy and jubilation every time a wave would come in burying each other in the sand just that that childlike wonder of being a kid and I, I my mind went back to that place and then it's like wow all the things that have happened that happen in life that take us from that innocent childlike behavior to through some really dark times so I I this, the term soul murder is new to me, but I understand the concept for sure. Yeah, it really struck me when I heard Justin say that in one of his podcast episodes. And he talks more about how we as men experience that soul murder because we come into the world of these beautiful little authentic beings. And then because of the way that society views masculinity, we we commit soul, uh, soul murder. But I thought it applied just as perfectly to the whole authentic thing because, yeah, yeah, it just felt like it really applied. Okay. Um, I'll jump in here and, and kind of address the, the main question here. What does it mean to be an authentic gay man? Um, a question I've been asking myself ever since Maddox, this has come to life for you, because uh, I think it is a very profound question to ask in, um, in my life. And for me, this journey has really started about four years ago. Um, I grew up in a very conservative uh, religious community and being gay was just not part of it. So I learned how to be someone else for a majority part of my life and how to seek validation through other means uh, throughout the majority of my life. Um, so what it means to be an authentic gay man recently to me is stimulating around being honest with myself first and foremost about what my own struggles are, what, um, what hurts me, what, what I need to fix in, in my wounded self uh, and being honest with that. Because I believe if I'm not honest with myself, it's difficult for me to be honest with the world around me. So I think being an, uh, an authentic gay man in my life is just that, is connecting with other gay members or gay, the gay community, the queer community, um, and being able to talk about things that are, are important and, and having that vulnerability on my end to give to someone else, which in turn allows them to have the window of opportunity to do that themselves. 
Yes, I think when we step out there and get vulnerable, we give those in our presence permission to do the same. And learning to be vulnerable with myself has been part of this journey this last four years of, of being able to acknowledge my own pain and, and give that kid in me uh, the chance to heal and to be proud of who that young kid is. And, and what does that look like, Randy? Can you, can you draw a little bit more of a, a picture at what that looks like to, to validate that little kid? Yeah, uh, for sure. Being able to not judge um, myself, not being able to, uh, or to give myself grace. I think that's uh, a great way of putting this. Um, oftentimes I heard that term growing up so much, uh, but in the biblical context of what grace is, but I've learned to apply that as giving myself a pass, being gracious with myself for, for things that, for old behaviors that keep popping up, um, and being able to be honest, and that word just keeps coming back, being honest and allowing myself the chance to sit face to face with, with who I am and, and being okay with it. Yeah. I, I love the distinction that you made when you talked about grace, not necessarily being the religious version of grace, but about self graciousness. I love that. Thank yeah. you for, for adding that. I'll add, on, add on to what Randy's saying. Uh, you know, we've had a few conversations about, our similar past and it's been like um taking off layers you know like the initial uh layer for me was you know being gay inside of a religious organization and you know preaching truths but not living my own personal truth and i I had that conflict in me where it's just like you're being a hypocrite by being out here you know spreading a truth but you're not true to yourself. Like how, how, how is that? Okay. And to me, that was the biggest uh, inconsistency in, in who I was and who I was pretending to be. And then with time, you keep on finding different layers of where you're being inconsistent. You know um, you say you want this, but you, but you're doing something completely different. So how do you align those two things and um, you know, relationships it, it, and you keep finding places where, you realize the, the the programs and the the patterns that you were exposed to, you know, because we all have different patterns that we're exposed to. And so that and that results in our own, you know, our own way of seeing the world, our own religion, our own logic, because of the individual patterns that we have. Um, and get, becoming aware of those has been like what I focus a lot of my attention on. And as I release them, I feel more authentic. And I think that the authenticity um, is reflected back to you. Like, you know, if someone says there's an authentic person, it's because they felt authenticity from you. So it's, it, it, it starts with, with me, but I have to get rid of the inauthentic parts, you know? So that's been a lot of what I've dedicated my time to is healing those things, really letting go, healing, softening. You know, I was struck when both of you were talking, it seems the, like the foundation for this really is pain. It is the pain of the awareness, the conflict that our inner world is is um, 
uh, not in alignment with our outer world, and then having the awareness and the discipline and the fortitude to do that fearless moral inventory that you described, where you really take a clear-eyed look at yourself and start to get real, start to get real, maybe for the first time in our lives as queer people, because we are um, I mean, that in and of itself is an act of resistance. It's a even a political act of resistance um, when so much of the world is trying to annihilate us. So for us to first um, acknowledge the discrepancy and excavate the truth underneath that and be able to look ourselves in the mirror and claim our identity, that's how we become that phoenix rising from the ashes. That's how we can learn to stand tall and take our place in the world. And, and I think start to radiate the authenticity that Ed was describing. Mm, beautiful. I, re- I really love how you use the word annihilate. And <laughs> I can't even say it. Annihilate. Wait, I'm saying it wrong. Someone annihilate. Thank you. Because for me, it, it I was gr- I grew up being demonized as being a gay person and i developed this sense of self that well i'm going to be the best at being a sinner if if i'm a sinner and i'm doomed i'm going to be the best at it so i'm going to drink the most have use the most drugs sleep with the most men like this i want to be the best at it and when i began to uncover that and peel all those layers back i'm able to see more of who i am and not this version that I wanted to present to people. I, I'm glad you used that, Brett. That, yeah, it's like we start our lives fighting, you know, fighting, yeah. resisting who we really are because of the outward pressure put upon us. And then, like you said, flipping the script and fighting everybody else in the room for putting us through that. And it's not until we, you know, as we gain agency in the world and grow up and and step into more of our power, then we can learn to, you know, set down our shield, set down our sword, take off our armor, and actually be more of who we were always meant to be. You know, I heard a speaker one time say that if a child hears you are bad enough, there will be a time when they intentionally become bad to live up to the expectation that has been placed on them. And that's what came to my mind as you were both talking about that, that we as, as queer gay men have have been demonized. We have been made wrong. We've been made bad. We've been called sinners. Um, And when you hear that enough, you you'd feel compelled in some way to live up to it. And your, your story beautifully validates that Randy. Powerful. Wow. Yeah. Well, in the past, what has possibly stood in the way of your being fully authentic? Story people. i mean if we're gonna get real we have to own the fact that we live in a society steeped in straight suppression and that um straight supremacy i mean and that it was um functionally illegal i mean it was functionally illegal for us to exist much less to congregate much less to have a committed loving relationship 
um, for decades, for generations. It's only been in the last, I mean, there's never been anything like it in recorded human history, the amount of rapid progress we've made in our community in terms of social political progress. And so functionally, it's been straight people. It's been our parents. It's been our grandparents. It's been our uncles and brothers and our family friends and our coaches and our educators who were oppressing us. These were decisions that they actively made. These were choices that they made. And so that's our first act of resistance is learning to resist those we love most. Wow. Wow. I would not have even gone there. And I'm so glad you did. I'd have gone in another direction and I'm so glad you went there. I mean, have you ever sat down with um, a straight person who you love deeply, maybe even somebody in your family who's known you since you were a child and asked them to hold and really consider the cost of their prejudice and bigotry, the impact it's had on your life? And I don't mean from a place of blame or shame. I mean, from a place of love and communion so that they can truly start to see you and understand the journey and know you more fully. It will bring them to their knees. If they're willing to love you and receive that, it'll bring them to your knees and to their knees. And that's that's really the only way that we can truly move forward together if we're gonna get real and have real full loving relationships, like in these cross-cultural senses. If we're gonna get real with our straight friends, our straight family, they have to understand the cost of their choices. Yeah. You know, I'm realizing the reason that I didn't come up with anything that was remotely like your answer. And, and that's because I, I didn't have a really bad experience when I came out, when I came out to my family, they had to go through, of course, an adjustment, but they were mostly pretty accepting my, my whole family. Um, and after the adjustment was over, they were completely accepting. I, I didn't. And, and in, and in all my friendships, I mean, I was bullied unmercifully as a kid growing up, but in my adulthood and after I came out, the straight world like really supported me, like really supported me. I, I ran up against very little resistance when I came out and started sharing with people in my life. And this was in the early 80s. This was 81. This was a long time ago. Central Texas, no less. Yeah, yeah. In a small town in Central Texas. Yes. That's cool. Yes. You know, there were people that it made a little uncomfortable, but there was nobody that attacked me or demonized me. And that's why I didn't naturally go to that place that you were you were describing. And I didn't realize that until like, I don't know, just now. So wow. Ed, what about you? Yeah, um, I agree, Britt. You know, for, for a long time, I wasn't even aware of the damage of the of, from the relationship patterns that I was gr growing up in. You know, it wasn't until I realized that there were some patterns that were unhealthy that I realized how the, that affected the rest of my relationships. Um, and, you know, Maddox and I have had, you know, lots of conversations about a, a lot, lots. <laughs> about, lots about this whole belonging and intimacy, you know, and because of the 
the fear because of the weaponization of relationships that I experienced growing up, you know, I was told I wasn't opening up and I wasn't being intimate and that there was some kind of block. And I didn't see it for a long time until two or three people who I was close with Maddox being one of them pointed it out to me. And I realized, wait a minute, I have some kind of, I don't know what to call it, but some, some kind of intimacy disorder. You know, I, I, I don't know what else to name it, but once I, you know, when you name it, you tame it, you know? Um, so that's been a lot of what I've been working on, but as a result of the, 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 the straight suppression in, in, in the most loving, nonviolent way, you know, but it, it, it's a rejection of who I am as a person and the inability to have an authentic relationship with them. Well, and I, I think it's important for the listeners to know what you're talking about. Uh, Ed grew up Jehovah's Witness. And so it's, 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 it's a whole different ballgame than the rest of us, what we experienced religiously. Jehovah's Witness is a whole different league in all of itself. Would you agree, Ed? I had a tough time accepting from the therapist that it was a cult. But as I've learned more, I, I would say it's, it's one of the more benign cults. <laughs> you know, too, and Maddox, you asked about like what's, what has an impact on becoming that fully authentic person. And this ties in with it that religion for me was that weapon um, and God was even weaponized against me, which as a 12 year old, I distinctly remember sitting on a wooden pew, hearing how people like me were going to this fiery pit. And I was trying to reconcile this as a 12 year old, this puffy white cloud image over here and myself roasting over a fire on a spit. Um, as a kid because of of who I loved and that cognitive dissonance was like being expected to do calculus without even knowing pre-algebra and and the religion for me was one of the major blockers of me getting to my authentic self being able to pull back what that damage did to me I mean if you're if your primary caregivers write the templates for your life just in those two stories alone, it's no wonder that many gay people are out here struggling to find ourselves, struggling to form intimate bonds with others, maybe slapping on band-aids, as Maddox was alluding to earlier with, you know, um, casual drug use or sex use that's not in alignment with their values or or whatever the band-aid might be, whatever, you know, best little boy in the world behavior, or I think somebody was describing or, or earning lots of money, being in the rat race, whatever that band-aid might be, avoiding our true selves at all costs, almost as if it's a, an issue of affordability. It's almost like we learned as children, we cannot afford to be ourselves. I think that's completely accurate. I mean, like spot on. And it's really sad. Yeah. And it affects, you know, as gay men, it affects every relationship we have. And oddly, the, the relationship that I believe it affects the most are our relationships with each other. Mm -hmm. we, we've been so conditioned that even when we're in a room with each other, where there are no threats, there's no outside forces, there's no straight people in the room, there's nobody that's condemning us, we still can't be ourselves, even with our own brothers. 
I bet, I bet, I agree, I completely agree. And I bet if you found uh, uh, any random um, gay man on the street and, and you asked them um, their two biggest issues, it'd be why can't I find love and why don't I fit into the gay community? Yes. Yes, we all have yeah. uh, this outside, on the outside looking in thing going on. It's it's a theme. And I've and read so many articles that validate that the the biggest epidemic in the gay community is loneliness and it's and isolation. It's bigger than HIV and AIDS itself. Yeah. Randy, what were you going to say? I just want to echo like those two questions you said about asking gay men uh, as my as doing as being a mental health professional therapist. I I see that all stems in childhood as from shaming and just from not even if we take religion out of it, just the culture that um, gay men are brought up in, being able to know, who, being able to love themselves first as a gay man comes a lot down the road for many, many people. And it's not instilled as children or as adolescents, and we're not taught that. So I validate those questions. If you ask those to me, of course, why can't I find love? Well, you weren't shown what love was as a kid. Yeah, think about all the self-limiting beliefs we carry. Think about all the way that all the ways that changes our body, the way we present in the world. It changes the way we display our energy in the world. I mean, how how would you have found love? You don't even know what you're looking for, or are you even loving yourself? I mean, there's you know we have to begin at the beginning, and so many of us as gay men were like trying to skip all the foundational stuff, the rites of passage, the traditions, the initiation ceremonies that we all missed out on. Most of us missed out on um, growing up as gay men. And it's like, we're trying to skip all of that and go straight to the successful, easy, long-term romantic relationship. It's, you know, just doesn't really work that way. No, it's, it's putting the cart before the horse and it doesn't work that way. Hmm. Ed, I'm curious what has stood in your way, like we were talking about. What's kind of that obstacle that's been presented for you in your human experience? Mm -hmm. I think those close relationships um, with family and realizing that even though someone may be family, they may not be healthy for you and, and knowing how to navigate that relationship you know, and distinguishing, you know, some people are more toxic than others. <laughs> and so realizing that you can, you can make distinctions. And, you know, I have family members that I only communicate with through writing, because it's the only way to have a semi-productive relationship, you know, since, you know, you're kind of stuck with them. But I have other relationships with my family that we talk once a week on the phone, and we have a designated time. Because more than that would be just completely ignoring my boundaries, you know, and it, it's it's my way of helping them learn boundaries, you know, and and whenever, you know, they and uh, yeah, so it, it, it's getting good with the people closest to you because I feel like once you get a handle on that, it kind of solves the majority of your problems in, in that area, you know. Well, family yeah. is almost always the hardest. Yeah. I mean, when it, we, they're the hardest people to set boundaries with. They're the hardest people to confront. Um, it's it's the uh, it's like, in some regards, the final frontier. 
I mean, I think mm-hmm. really the final frontier is is in here. It's it's confronting and setting boundaries with ourselves, but the the family is is right below that. Yeah, that's been challenging. But but then you you turned that from a disadvantage to a huge va- advantage. You know, because most people are <laughs> aren't going to be as crazy as your family. <laughs> Well, and if they are, you you can walk away. You got practice, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, you can walk away from family, but it is it's harder. It is harder to walk away from family. Most people don't have the constitution to do that. I have the constitution to do that. I could do that. I have no doubt in my mind. I could do that if I if it was that toxic. But I rarely meet anybody else that can can do that. Because it's that that blood thing. We just believe so much in that that blood that we can't just can't do it. Curious what you think, Randy, as far as toxicity and cutting off close relationships. You know, like well, how how do you navigate that? Close relationships, as in family, friends, uh, all the above. Yeah, whatever's closest, but toxic, and you know. I think for me, that's taken decades and decades of trying to understand um, and identifying what toxicity is. Um, since I grew up being around it um, and being forced to attend a church that didn't uh, that didn't align with who I was and, and even a member of that church molested me. So it's like that toxicity ran so deep in, in me from the beginning. Um, so I, I, for me, it's like, once I learned how to stop being toxic to myself, um, that gave me more clarification of, okay, now, now that I know what's harming me, what I'm doing to harm me, I can put up boundaries, appropriate boundaries, so other people do not cross into that and harm me. Oh man, it's been a it's been a struggle for mm-hmm. for for sure. Mm-hmm. Thank you. You know, there's nowhere for us to go almost to learn these skills. Um, for men our age, most of our mentors died. I mean, you know, to a certain degree, um, they were annihilated um, by the U.S. government and um, through the AIDS epidemic. And um, so it's left a huge void where we have had to play a guessing game with ourselves and glean what we could from straight society through therapy or through self-help books or whatever and try and make it applicable to our lives and create our own culture and so we're a lot of us in certain respects are like babies you know a little bit lost in the woods and um trying to find our way with the best of intentions and you know just trying one thing after another and seeing what works and slowly accumulating knowledge and wisdom and that's what i'm so hopeful for about our generation is that if we do the work that we've been describing, we can stand tall and be those mentors and role models for future generations who are going to need it just like we did. Yeah, I agree. I love how you said that. I love how you said that as well. You know, I I look back on my life. I came out in 1981 and 
throughout my life as a gay man, I have never had any gay role models. Never. This has been a DIY project since the get-go. I had to figure it out through trial and error. And what I wouldn't have given, you know, to have a, a mentor or, or a role model that was gay and that could have shown me the ropes, but it never presented itself. I think that is part of what's now driving me to host this podcast and I make myself pretty available to the people around me that I can tell are are struggling. I don't I don't want people to to go it alone the way I feel like I did. It's like we all share a common bond of being a wounded healer. Yep. From all of our past traumas that we are able to be in a place to for the listeners and for our community as resources to help overcome the the shame that other people went through yeah alchemize all that pain into something really beautiful yes and and that's available to us if we make the choice Mm -hmm. that's something beautiful i i can see it in my vision i can see it now that doesn't mean we'll ever achieve it but i can certainly see that the opportunity is there if we choose it So what does not being authentic cost you or what has it cost you in the past when you weren't living authentically? You lead off, Randy. I can just see you're just dying. (laughs) What has it cost me? It's cost me thousands and thousands of dollars. It's cost me a criminal record, a job. It's cost me isolation. It's cost me... um, Depriving myself of what loving myself truly means. Um, It's cost me years of escapism um, and trying to find validation in in the people I sleep with or validation of uh, the people I hang out with. It's, It's just cost me more than, I mean, that's a really, that question hit me really deeply because it's, it it really did a number on me throughout my life. Yeah. I feel you, brother. Broken relationships. I mean, I I have to this day have yet to have a have a um, loving, solid, committed relationship with a man because I never learned how. Um, so it's cost me a lot of pain. I would say my lack of authenticity caused me, well, a lifetime. I've, I've only really discovered my authentic self and, and in a man, it's, it's so weird to me. It's compartmentalized for most of my life. I've been able to be really authentic around my straight friends and family. That was a no brainer. I have never been able to be authentic with other gay men. I li- I've lived and, and, People are probably getting tired of hearing this part of the story, but I lived in a fortress for four decades. You know, f- fuck armor. I didn't need armor. I had a goddamn fortress around me. And um, it, I, I had a million acquaintances and no friends. 
I've lived in Dallas for 30, almost 32 years. And I, I know a shitload of gay men here and I don't know any of them. I don't know any of them. It's only you know, been in the last couple of years that I am dismantling that fortress and becoming more authentic and and having a completely different experience. Once I took the fortress down and started to let people see who I am, it's 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 changed. But but there was there was a a, a very defining moment here a couple of years ago when I realized that I had a, an, a I had a string of events at an early time in my life when I first came out and I pretty painful events and I applied a meaning to that. And the meaning I applied was that gay men were not safe. And I applied it to the whole community. And I lived from that paradigm, those, that lens for four decades. And when I realized that I was the one that assigned that meaning and what that meaning had cost me, I cried uncontrollably cried and cried and cried because I just couldn't believe that I had cost myself 40 years of potential really cool friendships. But, you know, Maddox, you're going to help so many people. That story. I, th- I just so frequently from gay guys that it's so much easier for us to be friends in the straight world, friends with straight people. And that's how we've been conditioned to relate to the world is from the straight perspective. And that's part of the cost of straight supremacy is we see everything through the mass media driven straight narrative. And so how do we learn to carve out a space where we can relate one-to-one or even one-to-many as gay people? Gosh, I think we're all struggling with that. We are. So I think your story is gonna resonate and help so many people. You know, there was a time not so long ago where there would have been no way in hell I could have sat here on this Zoom with the three of you and talked the way I'm talking right now and revealed what's really inside of me. There'd have been no fucking way. I I think after I finally stopped crying uncontrollably, I realized that I needed to be thankful that I got it after 40 years and didn't live my life out and die being in that fortress. I'm going to add to what you're saying, Maddox, because, you know, you asked the question, what was the cost of not being authentic? And I'm going to agree is realizing all the relationships that have been affected because I wasn't available. You know, I I wasn't um, I wasn't being authentic. So any relationships I did have were a shell. You know, you know, Ed was never in a relationship because it was a shell that was in a relationship with everybody else. And it wasn't until you had the courage to kind of defend who you are, that you can start attracting the relationships that will accept you for who you are, you know? So I, you know, I'm thankful that I, you know, have been able to step away from those shell relationships, those fake relationships. Um, and I can do it going forward, but I, I do realize the cost looking back it's definitely definitely lots of missed opportunities missed relationships missed moments um yeah well and and you and i have played a very big role in each other's process in this you have you have played an integral role in in me 
taking down that fortress and and being more open. You are one of the people that I have really like explored that with over the last three years in our friendship. And and I I I know that the same is true for you. You have let me into places that you haven't led anyone else. We've had these conversations. We, we've played a very, very important role in this for each other. And um, there's no, been, there's no real words to express what that means to me. It's been very healing, very healing. It's been very yeah. healing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, Ed and I see each other every weekend, no matter what. Wow. When he is in town, we spend time together every single weekend. And when he is out of town, which he is about 50% of the time, we have a standing Zoom call every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central Time. And it's a rare thing for us to miss that. And Ed always says, as we get ready to get off the phone, he said, you know, this is, this is always like church without the bad stuff. <laughs> Well, you're that's living proof. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You're living proof that there's a certain kind of love that we can only get from each other as gay men from our cultural space. And that's why gay only spaces are still sacred as they're diminishing and dwindling. They're still sacred because there's a certain kind of love and awareness that we can only get from one another. And it's so um, healing and sacred and foundational. You know, and, and I, I think the same is true for physical affection. I have a plethora of women that love all over me, you know, the hugs and the kisses. And and I love that. And it means the world to me. But there's a big difference in that physical affection from a female friend and from one of my my gay friends. It it. It feeds a hunger when I when I get that physical touch and affection from a friend. I'm not talking about anything sexual. I'm talking about platonic physical affection. When I get that from one of my male friends that I feel love and, and closeness to, it it nurtures my spirit. It feeds my soul in a way that it's never been fed before. And I I crave that. I, I was listening to a story the other day. I was on a podcast, and it was African American man, and he, or, or he, he was he may have been African descent. He may not have been the American part. I don't remember, but he was talking about men in Kenya. It's walking down the streets. It's a very common thing for straight men to hold hands walking down the street, mm. and I I got emotional just hearing that. Because I thought what I wouldn't give to walk down the street and hold hands with my friend, no lover, just my friend. I would walk down the street and hold hands with you, Ed, anytime you would be willing to do that. <laughs> I, I, I long for that. I long for a time when we don't have all this bullshit that we've been programmed with where we can just love on each other. Yeah. And I just want to jump in and say something that uh, triggered a memory that you said it, it's been a while, um, but it also helped me in this last four years is to be able to look at other gay men, not as a sexual conquest, 
Like I, I think so, for so long, at least for me, growing up in a culture where it was demonized and underground, there became this huge amount of shame. And my relationships with, with men, 99% of the time, always evolved around sex. So learning how to interact with gay men without that, um, that for me has been so helpful in becoming more authentic with myself. Yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you. I can look back at a time where if you weren't either a love interest or a sexual partner, it was like, get the fuck out of my way. I didn't have any, any time or energy for you. If you weren't one of those two things, either a sexual partner or a love interest, get out of my way. And once again, I, I, it hurts my heart to know how many people I pushed aside looking for the end-all, be-all Band-Aid. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear you guys both. It's so tragic. And and obviously, in terms of culpability and life choices, we all have our part to play. But I do want to put the blame where it's necessary to reside, and that is with straight supremacy. Because when you start to think about gay history and the way that it was depending on where you lived and where you were in a given moment, it was literally illegal to congregate, dance. We had to have sex in secret. We had to segment our lives. We had to um, filter our friendships. We could not afford to associate with others lest the jig be up, lest we be exposed. And so over time, we developed this transactional cultural relationship with sex. And so we we viewed every every interaction as a potential hunt. Oh yes. Randy and I are shaking our heads. Yes. <laughs> yes. So of course it's tough. We didn't learn to be friends without sex because everybody, every other gay male is ostensibly a potential partner or lover, like you were saying. And so we didn't learn. We were socialized and conditioned in such a way that disincentivized those platonic relationships. Yeah. Spot on. Yeah. Cultivating those authentic relationships, I think, is the balm for a lot of our wounds as gay men. Amen. Yeah. Yes. Beautifully said. The balm. The salve, the soothing medication. Yes. I, I'm, I'm right there with you. So how do you know when you're actually authentic? How do you know? I think a piece of it is um, you're not in your head, you know, you're, you're not worried about, is this coming off the right way? Is this what I should have said, not should have said, not done, should have done, you know, none of this should have, would have, could have, I forgot, I forgot who says it, but that's kind of like a great catch-all. And if you're not in that space and you're just being you, whatever that is, I think that'll come across as authentic, you know? Um, so I think the, 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 I know we've talked about this, this whole fear of living in your heart, you know, we have like, it's like, you have to develop the courage to be disliked, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, you know what, they don't like me. That's okay. You know, life goes on. I like me, you know, <laughs> and, yes. it, and it's learning to say that to yourself because, you know, we all have our bumps. 
someone client or pretend, you know, whatever. Someone may rub us the wrong way, but to be confident in your um, your worth as a human being, and without judging the other person, because you know, I think in the initial part of the healing, <laughs> you know, you might get upset, and then and then you know maybe criticize the, the the person or try to take them down a few notches but then you you learn to not take it personally i'm a huge fan i think i've mentioned to you in the past i'm a huge fan of the four agreements and one of them being not to take things personally that i know that's been a challenge for me but by not taking things personally you you give yourself grace i think this is what randy was saying earlier you know you allow yourself grace and you're not going to, even if, if it is being in a personal attack, you can you can give yourself grace and the person grace and it not affect your sense of worth and your day, your peace, you, you, on you go. And I think that that's the feeling that people will label as authentic. You know, I think that's kind of what's happening inside, for me at least. I, I have gotten to the point where when I get rejected or somebody doesn't like me, or they unsubscribe from my mailing list. I just say, oh, thank God you have just <laughs> made room for somebody that does want to come and sit right next to me. Right. Yeah. So what you were describing, Ed, it sounded like to me what I took away from it anyway was an embodied um, approach to life where it's like you sort of re- release the words and you you live your life from this um, almost like this you're grounded in the physical you're grounded in your body you're grounded in your physical response to the world you are in the present you're releasing stories about the past and the future you're approaching each present moment you're approaching the here and now with beginner's mind and fresh eyes and without stories and the more that at least what I found, and and I don't know if you were saying this, but at least what I found is that the more language starts to intercede, the further away I tend to be drifting from my authenticity. Words are wonderful. Words are really important. But I just find that words are how the stories start to hook in with me and pull me a little bit further away from my, I don't want to say true self, but that, you know, that authentic, embodied, you know, ever present. Agreed. I love how you said that as far as present, being present. Um, that's how I know when I'm being authentic is being in the present and doing things that I love. And no matter what that is, uh, being comfortable with myself. When I wrote that question down, I thought, Dang, that's a hard question. I don't know if I have an answer for that. And I pondered over it a little bit and what came to me because I, and Ed, you know this, I I operate very intuitively. And what came to me was the way you know that you're truly authentic is when the world reflects it back to you. Nicely stated. Because, you know, that mirror image doesn't lie. When the world holds a mirror up in front of you, it doesn't lie. What do you gain by showing up in the world fully authentic? 
What's possible? Not a, not a criminal record, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, right? Showing up authentic is uh, <laughs> is healthy choices, for sure. What do I gain? That was joy. Not a criminal record. That was really good. I love it. Joy. We have to start with the fact that there's no guarantees, though. I mean, being authentic doesn't guarantee you anything. You know, the only thing that hurts worse than not, the, the only thing that hurts worse than loving is not loving. And so I think it, ultimately it's a really pragmatic choice, but there's definitely no guarantees. And I think there's honor in the personal expression of authenticity, regardless of any outcomes. Yeah, that's beautifully said. And I think I that think- we have to be authentic for ourselves. It didn't, it didn't, we're not doing it for everybody else. We're doing it for ourselves. I was going to say the exact same thing, Maddox. I, I was just going to say it comes out of like love for your inner peace. You know, it, it's like I, no, no matter what happens now, I'm not going to allow something to, you know, keep me up at night, whatever that is. Like, I want to make sure that I'm making decisions during the day that when I sleep, I sleep without a care in the world. And I want to make sure that, and I do things not to look right, not to be accepted, not to be validated. I do it because the more I can be who I am, the more, like you said, I can attract the people who like me for who I am. And I will repel those who don't like the way I am. And that's okay. You know? Yes. You know, one thing about authenticity is it is polarizing. The more we get fully authentic, it polarizes people. And there's two kinds of people, the ones that scream and run in the opposite direction and the ones that want to come and sit right next to me. And and just like I said earlier, I'm always grateful for the ones that scream and run because they're creating more space for the ones that want us to come and sit right next to me. That's that that's that's my mantra, my attitude. And I think there's something really interesting happening in social media right now around personal authenticity, where culturally um, we almost have a sense of hyper individualism. Um, right now, where many of us feel um, that um, it, whether it's from a sense of entitlement or maybe overdeveloped sense of freedom or individuality, it's like we, in certain respects, have lost our sense of the collective good. And um, we're confusing um, um, authenticity with, um, let's see, displays of um, praise and um, accumulation, um, like we talked about the accumulation of wealth um, at the beginning of the, of the episode. Um, you know, what's coming to mind in, for me is like the, the kind of performative Instagram posts where you have people in the same way that reality television is not based in reality, these many of these Instagram posts are not based in reality either. And so authenticity by some has been co-opted. And it's, and it's, and it's this kind of 
um, me first movements that's masquerading as authenticity, because I think true authenticity has at its heart selflessness and especially selfless service, because I just happen to I happen to think that's the way hearts are wired. That when two hearts get together, that you can't help but experience love and you can't help but experience grace and spaciousness and selflessness and care and concern. And so I think that we're in a little bit of a, I don't know if I want to say dangerous moment, but we're in an interesting spot in history um, where this sense of hyper-individualism and um, the accumulation of likes and praise and comments, um, we are using that to kind of... um, bypass the work that we alluded to previously, the spiritual growth and personal development work to display a false authenticity, which at its heart is about is ego driven and is about the, the putting on the armor, the building, put living behind a bunker, even if it's bedazzled and pretty and gorgeous and you're in Bali and you're this influence, you know, um, so I think that I, I can I could sort of hear in my head maybe some of the listeners to this conversation, like, yeah, but what about? And this kind of came to my mind, like there are there we have to be so careful with these words because it's it's easy to get it twisted. And for me, I guess this long rambling rant I'm on is that <laughs> I think at its heart, authenticity has selflessness and love at its core. I would have to agree with you wholeheartedly. I, I know as as I have gone deeper into my own self-love, I have been much more drawn to service of others. <clears throat> much more we-oriented. I mean, there was a point when I realized that I had always talked about gay men as the others. They weren't me and I wasn't them. And that's changed. That's changing now. It's more of a we now. And, I, and I'm, I'm thinking more in terms of we. I'm, I'm talking about it more in terms of we. It's less of a them and me. And that feels really wonderful. But I think you hit the nail on the head. I think we are on a slippy, slippery slope right now. I think there is a lot of stuff out there that's masquerading as authenticity that is not particularly legitimate authenticity. And if it's based in, you know, it's like that saying the word team doesn't have an eye in it. <laughs> I think there's something, something to that. I was going to make a wordle joke, but I think it passed. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't spit it out quite quick enough. Huh? No, no. <laughs> well, does anybody have anything else they'd like to add? Is it, do we leave anything out? Has anybody got any other questions? Okay, as a therapist, a question I like to ask a lot of people. Um, came from when I asked myself is like, I'm wondering what parts of myself are healing that nobody else gets to see. Um, And by being able to address those and heal those and, and tend to those parts that I keep hidden continues to allow me to become more comfortable with myself and love myself 
Hence, being vulnerable with myself creates more a true version of myself by admitting that there are still parts of me that are human. Yes. I get that completely. So are you available to share a part of you that nobody gets to see that you're healing? <laughs> Just so you know, he flipped me the bird right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can give you a, a You didn't a see that coming, Randy? <laughs> I stepped right into it, didn't I? <laughs> like like a foot in a cow patty. Right. I can share briefly, um, because it's so relevant, um, is my relationship with my father. Um, this has been going on since, obviously, childhood. Um, and being able to, for almost 50 years now, of, of getting to a place where I'm okay with myself and not needing that approval, not needing that uh, permission to be me has been one of these wounds Uh, and being able to recognize what toxicity is, even in my own family, even with my own parent. Um, That's been a really, really hard area of growth for me. Yeah. I can feel that. I can feel that. Well, Um, go go ahead. Oh, I was, I was just going to add, um, nothing. You can cut this part out. (laughs) You can edit this part out. No, go ahead and say it. Go ahead. Uh, go ahead and say it. Well, um, you alluded to it earlier too, Maddox, about being okay with cutting people out that are even your family. Um, and I'm one of those persons that I was, ne- I, I was never that person until recently. Like I always went back for more and more, trying to get validation, trying to get approval. And, and for decades being swatted away like a pesty fly, um, I, I never, well, it was really difficult for me to arrive at a place where I'm at right now of being okay if I in that relationship. So I think a lot of, whether it's parent, uh, father, or mother, or grandparent, I think a lot of gay men struggle with that, getting to a place of recognizing their own worth without needing the validation from a caregiver or a parent. And I know that as I went deeper into my own self-love, my sense of self-preservation became stronger and stronger. And that's what would enable me to walk away from a toxic, even a parent. Because at this point, I love myself enough to take myself out of that toxic situation, even if if it's a friggin' parent. But I just empathize with all of you that it's confusing. It's paradoxical. We just said earlier, a few moments ago, that it's so important we learn to meet ourselves in the eyes of others. And now we're also saying, sometimes we have to make boundaries. So how do you know? It is confusing. You know, how do you know? You're very right. This is the, For me, this is where my intuition comes in really strong. I have to trust me. 
And it's it's not something that I can logically figure out. It's something that I have to go within and feel my way through it. And my body will tell me what's right. I mean, you said a lot there. And that, I mean, you kind of gave it away for a lot of the guys. You you gave a lot in that response, Maddox. I, I hope listeners kind of pause and rewind on that because... <laughs> I mean, that you know, was great. I had a situation last night. I had a date last night and we were going to meet at a local restaurant. Well, my car went into the shop on Monday morning and they've had trouble getting parts and there's been this whole rigmarole and I've been without a car all week long. And so it came time to go on my date. I thought I would get my car back in time for last night. Didn't get my car back. So a couple of hours earlier, I text my date and I said, my car has had to go in the shop. And so I'm going to be Ubering over to the restaurant to meet you. I will do my best to be there on time, but I can't control Uber. So it will be what it will be. You know, I was just letting him know that if I'm, if I'm late, it's not because I'm not intending to be there. It's because Uber comes when they come. And he, this is a first date. This was my first time to meet this gentleman. We had talked on Zoom a couple of times and he's text back and he said, would you like for me to come pick you up? And I stopped for a minute and I, I went in, I went into my body. I got out of my head and I went into my body, you know, and I thought, is that okay? Does that feel okay to you to let him a see where you live, b get in the car with a stranger and I went into my body and my body said, yes, it'll be fine. And I text back and said, what a lovely offer. Yes, thank you. I would love for you to pick me up. And he did. We had a light, nice dinner and then he brought me back and dropped me off. <laughs> but my body did that for me. I didn't get up in my head. I always say the head... The mind will lie to you like a bitch. (laughs) The body never lies. The body never lies. You know, you mentioned something just to add to what you're saying. I've noticed this sort of like epidemic of low grade anxiety. You know, there's just, it's like unnecessarily unsafe, unnecessarily concerned about something. And it's just low grade, just always there, always there, always there, always there. And if you don't have the ability to ask yourself that question, be like, okay, where is this, you know, is the anxiety supposed to be there? You know, what is my body saying? Just kind of having that whole conversation. Um, I think lots of people are not having that conversation. I think it's just the feeling of anxiety and getting hijacked by the anxiety, whatever, wherever that manifests in their life. But just be able to stop and do what you did, did is is bringing awareness to that because anxiety has its usefulness but is oh, it yes. an overdrive you know it, is does. it, an overdrive? it does have its yeah. useful and it's it's a yeah. form of our body trying to commute communicate something to us but you're right you know once the yeah. intuition came through and said it'll be fine to have, have him pick you up complete peace came over me and i didn't give it another thought but Ed is spot on. A lot of us would just drink that anxiety away or snort it up our nose or go have sex with it or whatever the behavior of the Band-Aid is. We would just, ah, anxiety, I got to make it go away. Rather than getting curious and having some self-love and empathy and sitting with it 
sitting with it. What's going on right now with me? What's going on in there? A good way I like to describe anxiety is worrying about something that hasn't happened. And as a gay man growing up in a very unpredictable world, that was my life. Amen. I, w- I think that was a lot of our lives. Yep. We didn't know yes. what was going to happen. So yes. this collective anxiety that I, I think that's within the gay community um, stems from a lot of that same stuff. Well, Randy, it's not only that we that life was unpredictable, it's that in many of our cases, not all, but in many of our cases, we were not imbued with the skills to manage our lives. We were not taught the skills. There are just gaps in our education because we were cast out. And so, you know, we just didn't have the technique. And so it's just you learn one mistake after another. And then hopefully through grace, you find yourself here somehow with some on some spiritual path with some support, some guys who will call you on your shit and some guys who will lift you up and love on you. And then you start to learn from one another. That's community. I, I also have come to believe that when we reach puberty and we realize we're different we're gay. We realize we don't. We we reach puberty, and all of a sudden, we realize that we're attracted to what we're not supposed to be attracted to. That we, in, in that repression of what's real for us, what's what's us, it actually stunts our emotional growth, our our, our emotional, yes, intelligence. It stunts that, and this is why I believe that when a man comes out at age fifty-five. He suddenly is literally an adolescent all over again because he never, or not all over again, he's an adolescent in a manner that he never got to be an adolescent the first time around. And when he finally lets go and, and, and stops all that repression, then the emotional maturity picks up where it left off when he was 12. You know, the alcohol, drugs do the same thing. When when we get in, in into the substances, our our emotional growth stops. And then when we finally get clean, our emotional growth has to start where it left off, wherever that was back there. So true. Anything else before we wrap, guys? I think we've covered this in a I'm I'm very, very excited about this. I didn't know there was going to be this much honesty tonight. That was that's good. It's wonderful. Yeah. Absolutely wonderful. Well, I want to thank you all for being guests on the podcast. Your contribution has been epic. Um, it's been a privilege and an honor to have this conversation with all three of you. And I feel like I know all three of you a little bit better than I did before I started. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Likewise. I hope you do too. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. yeah. Thank you.